0: This is All Things Considered, I'm Robert Siegel. Now the view from Sicily. Not the balmy Mediterranean Isle, but Sicily, Alaska, where Ruth Ann Miller, age 76, runs a store that sells a wide assortment of goods to a wide assortment of characters. ahead back there! I want to tell you about the time my friend Chris Stevens flung a piano with a medieval siege weapon known as a trebuchet.
1: Charles, that was, of course, the voice of Robert Siegel from NPR's All Things Considered. Pretty cool that we get sort of a real world connection to our, you know, fantasy of Sicily, Alaska. Uh, You know, Sicily's on the map now, you know, there's like it takes place in our real world. Are you a fan of All Things Considered?
2: I am, but not as much as Terry Gross's Fresh Air. Mm. I think I prefer that one a little bit more than All Things Considered, even if that one is the flagship
1: program for NPR. Yeah. Is All Things Considered still, is that still a program? Uh, No, it it is. It's just uh, Robert Siegel retired, I guess.
2: Yeah. So Robert Siegel was there from 1987 all the way to 2018. Wow. So by the time they were filming this, he was, you know, he was like five years into the job, give or take. Yeah. Well, six, seven, eight years.
1: Right. And um, what's funny, Charles, I don't know if you know this, but obviously, um, I mean, you do know Peg Phillips, the actress who plays Ruthann. She passed away, I want to say, in 2002. And uh, there is a, there was a short segment on All Things Considered um sort of you know memorializing Peg Phillips and Ruth Ann on uh, on all things considered uh you know when she when the actress passed away it's like a 2 minute uh listen that you can find on NPR i'll also put it in the episode description but it's pretty nice it's just remembering this uh this strange sort of occurrence between our real world and the world of Sicily, Alaska that happened, let's see, back in 1995 was when this episode aired. I am
2: surprised that I did manage to get all yeah. things considered, like the licensing for that. I, I have no idea how much that would cost, but I imagine it's must cost something. Like it can't be free.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was, uh, I mean, it's, it's public radio, right? So I don't know if it's, uh, how do you put a price on that? It's, uh, well it,
2: surely you have to license it and so, like I, I don't think we could just like we can't just upload like an entire episode oh, well I mean of all things Ro- considered I
1: would imagine Robert Siegel would be um yeah you saying Robert Siegel would be compensated as an actor but then also yeah using the brand I guess uh the name all things considered but I'm sure Again, I think uh, I think Northern Exposure, as we know, was pretty popular back in the day. So they might have been pretty excited to do a little crossover. It's just kind of oh, fun, is you know. That's true. It's just a little mm-hmm. fun little thing. Well, Charles, anyway, what what is this? What are we talking about? Who are we?
2: Right. So we're the Northern Overexposure podcast. My name is Charles, and I'm joining here with my co-host Lee.
1: My name's Lee. Uh, we're both big fans of Northern Exposure. Uh, But what's pretty cool is, Charles, you're watching this series for the first time as we do this podcast. We're almost done with all of Northern Exposure, so I'd say you're a veteran at this point. Uh, But it's still fun to get your opinion on these last episodes because you've never seen them before. Of course, I've seen uh, the series. It's one of my favorite shows. But I'm in a similar ballpark, maybe, because I never used to rewatch... The sixth season, I'd always go back. Obviously, start at the beginning, and I love even a lot of the episodes and like through everything through the fifth season, but just never really, never could pull the trigger again on season six. But I'm glad we are watching it now. I think we're getting into some. um, You know, I I was nervous that this would be sort of a a a pretty big slump, but so far the episodes have been pretty good uh, since. Joel has left, which is pretty surprising. What did you think of, of this episode today?
2: Yeah, so I want to say that since we've come back from the break, the first one coming right off of it, which is Lucky People, was all right. Yeah. I don't think I necessarily mm-hmm. disliked it heavily, but I didn't think it was swinging for the fences or anything like that. And then the episode after that, The Graduate, was fantastic.
1: Yeah, we, so bo- was... we both loved that episode.
2: But I didn't know if that was a one-hit wonder. So <laughs> coming into today's episode... Little Italy, and before we even talk about <laughs> quality, whether or not it's good or anything, can we agree that this is like the precursor to the Sopranos? <laughs> can we can we say like this is David Chase? Like it, it's a, it's point. a subconscious finally coming into the words are coming onto the parchment.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's true. We got a lot of uh, Italian squabbles, you know, family uh, squabbles here. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy that it didn't even cross my mind. I, I guess I like, I don't think of David Chase and The Sopranos too much when I'm com- thinking about Northern Exposure. Like they're very separate in my mind, but it's true that David Chase is the executive producer. And this was sort of uh, certainly not his first show that he worked on uh, in television, but this is, you know, as he's exiting the ramp or entering the ramp onto Sopranos, this is. Uh, when did the Sopranos come out? When when did that first air? So Sopranos premiered in 1999, like January. I'm basically what I was trying to figure out is like, did he just go from Northern Exposure to The Sopranos? Which um, I guess I could also figure that out. Let's see if he had any credits in between. Ah, uh, he does too. I it's not
2: much. Mostly supervising as a producer and a little bit as a writer, Ah, Okay. but the Rockford Files, it's got a four part television film and he was mostly supervision and he wrote for one of them. I mean, well, no, he wrote for two of them and he directed for one of them.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, if you go back in his, uh, in his history, his uh, career, um, he worked on the Rockford Files, uh, that TV show in the seventies. Uh, It says he wrote 20 episodes of that series and was a producer. So, yeah, obviously that was kind of maybe his beginning as like producer, showrunner, capacity type uh, work was the Rockford Files. So, yeah, got to bring him back for the TV film four-part series. I didn't even know that was a thing. And he directed the uh, final one, it looks like, or one of them. I don't know what order they're in, but he directed one of those uh, four parts. Anyway. Mm. Well, you know, there's actually a very interesting tidbit
2: in the Sopranos Wikipedia page where it says that David Chase signed a development deal in 1995 with production company Brilston Gray and wrote the original pilot script. So, hey, it's around this time. It's around that this he was time. About the Sopranos. <laughs> that he was writing yeah. the script.
1: Yeah. It's gonna, you know, flex some of those Sopranos muscles onto uh, Northern Exposure again. It's hard to say what exact involvement happened, you know, cause there's directors for each episode, there's writers for each episode. And we have, you know, I don't, I wouldn't even say that David Chase is the sole executive producer. Cause I want to say it was like Diane Furlov and Andrew Schneider as well were, mm-hmm. you know, boosted to exec producers at this point, um, in the series at the end here. But so it's hard to say, you know, who's got their fingers in this, uh, in this script here. Um, but, Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of connections like you're making, Charles. It makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Well, who are the
2: director and writers for this episode?
1: All right. So the episode is called Little Italy, 18th episode in season six. It was directed by Steven Cragg, who you will recognize. He's directed only one other episode of Northern Exposure. Back in season one, episode three, he was the director of Soapy Sanderson. All the way back there, they brought him back. We must have talked about him back then, but just to kind of uh, get an idea of his TV credits, I believe he's still working today, or at least, you know, up until quite recently, producing, um, directing TV. But at that time, during Northern Exposure, he had had experience with... Doogie Howser. He did 11 episodes in total throughout uh, Doogie Howser, but he's uh, lots of other TV, you know, The the Wonder Years, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer after um, Northern Exposure ended. Um, He did some Chicago Hope. Uh, There's, you know, he's all over TV. The writer for this episode is Jeff Melvoin, who of course we know all over the series. I'm going to list all of the episodes that he's written for Northern Exposure thus far, let's see, Dateline Sicily, Democracy in America, Crime and Punishment, Ill Wind, Love's Labor Mislaid, Cottish for Uncle Manny, Altered Egos, A River Doesn't Run Through It, A Bolt from the Blue, Una Volta in Linverno, Fish Story, Lovers in Mad Men, Far So Good, Sons of the Tundra, and he still has two more episodes after this. So he's written all over the series, and some of those are really good episodes. Finally, the air date, March 15th, 1995.
2: Well, all right. Looks like we got a director from season one coming back in super late into the game. And (laughs) trusty old Jeff Melvoin. Is this his last episode for Northern Exposure?
1: No, no, he's got two more after this. In fact, he actually co-writes the series finale with um, probably for love, Andrew Schneider, or is it Mitchell Burgess? No, it's Mitchell Burgess, Robin Green, and Jeff Melvoin.
2: Mm, All right, we're getting the heavy hitters out there for the... For the mm-hmm. series finale. Uh, why don't we dive into the episode then and start talking about it?
1: All right. Well, the opening gambit is uh, Dr. Capra is leaving a house call. This uh, The whole sort of like movement of the camera and the action and the dialogue is, gives us a sort of um, rushed feeling. As he's like leaving, he's giving some instructions, you know, take this, make sure you keep this uh, medication up, keep track of that, call me if like whatever occurs. Um, he's doing this as he walks over to his car. And just before he gets inside, he pauses and the camera kind of swings around him as, uh, you know, this motion has just become quite still. And you can see that he's kind of like looking around. I think he even like smells, like sniffs something in the air uh, is around him. And um, another car comes driving by, it's Chris. Phil like flags him down and stops Chris and is like, what is, do you smell that? It's a, it's a cooking smell. It's like onions or something like that. It's a, uh, another example of Proustian recall here in Northern Exposure where (laughs) the smell reminds him of uh, his aunt Gemma's spaghetti sauce. I wrote down that he's not like crying in this scene. I don't think so. But uh, he's playing it like it almost feels like his eyes are watering. You know, it's like he's really <laughs> he's really lost in this memory of the uh, the the scent, you know?
2: Ah, you were so close to that Zoomer slang. You, he was lost in the sauce. Lost in the sauce. <laughs> Spaghetti
1: sauce. <laughs> he's going to get lost in the sauce, I think, in this episode for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I'm going to defer to you and all the cinematic techniques that I use because I want to ask a little bit more about that. You're right. It really is very dynamic when he comes out the house, has a very shaky camera feel to it. But surely they filmed that with a is it with a dolly that they would have filmed this or is it hand cam throughout this entire time?
1: Must be a steady cam. You can kind of see the horizon shifting a little bit. This looks like a steady cam uh-huh. shot.
2: Oh, okay. And whenever he gets, this is where I found it most interesting. Whenever he gets to that shot where uh Phil is right next to his car and the camera swings around to the front of it and then stops. Right, as like a pretty good close up to Phil Capra's face, he is blocked to the left, significantly to the left. And that allows Chris to come driving in all the way around. And the camera doesn't have to shift at all Mm -hmm. because they gave so much room to the right. And I remember you telling me that there's like a certain term for this whenever the camera comes to its end of a track. Is it like camera movement one?
1: Oh, yeah. So this would be interesting. I guess like it would come to its, you know, the camera reaches a mark on the side of, uh, I don't know though. It kind of looks like it's still moving. No, he's, uh, yeah, yeah. Like the, the Steadicam operator would reach a certain mark. Basically at the start of the shot, they're like, all right, Steadicam operator, you're going to go walk backwards down. Is he walking down the stairs? Let me watch this. Cause that is, that can be tricky. No, the Steadicam operator is looking at the steps that Phil Capra steps down on, just walking backwards, swinging around with Phil. And then as Phil approaches the car, the Steadicam operator walks around the car and then reaches the, one of their marks. I don't know how many marks they may have in this shot. It just depends on what the operator needs to execute the shot. So he's landing on a mark. The Steadicam operator will just stay there, maybe move the camera if they need to, maybe like twist the camera a little bit to uh, to let Chris enter the shot. And then, yeah, looks like we're doing another movement Again to follow Capra as he runs around to the driver's side of uh Chris's truck. They have a little conversation.
2: Yeah, and I, I know that this is a podcast format, so <laughs> this is extremely exciting for the viewers. Just imagine right it in there. your mind's I,
1: eye, right?
2: Yeah. I'm sorry about that. I apologize. But to me, I think it's I love this. I mean, I think it's fascinating. You get a shot-by-shot breakdown of how it's being filmed. But uh sorry again to the viewers, maybe you can rewind the scene and try to catch up with what. Lee is saying right there. Mm-hmm. But the gist of it all is that it looks like Dr. Capra stumbled upon Little Italy. Now, Lee, should we stay on this plot line or should we divulge to the other two ones, Maggie, Halling and Shelley and Ruthann? Mostly Ruthann, it's actually, yeah, now mm-hmm. that I think about it, well, I guess Chris is involved
1: a little bit. NPR, you know, that's part of it. Let's keep with Little Italy. Let's stay on uh Dr. Capra's plot line here. It's kind of, you know, it's the titular plot line. It's kind of the meat of the episode. But before we dive back in, something I wanted to note. We haven't brought it up yet, but the opening title credits, they no longer feature Rob Morrow's name, of course, because he's not in the series anymore. Instead, the first name we see is Barry Corbin. Thought we should just mention that. Um so I guess like I'd have to go and compare and see, but I think like there's a shot that normally would say Barry Corbin on it. And it's just like a, it, it's just a blank. Like there's no, um, I mean the shots there, but there's no text on it anymore. So we got Barry Corbin leading the pack and also Terry Polo and Paul Provenza get their names in the opening titles, which I would imagine, uh, they've probably had before Joel leaves the series, but, um, certainly now they're, they're in on the, uh, in the main title sequence.
2: Was Joel still on the opening credits for the past two episodes?
1: Again, we haven't been bringing it up. Like, this is the first time I thought to check, but I would imagine after the quest, we don't see Rob Morrow's name. It just wouldn't make sense to show in front of the um, credits anymore. Uh, I will ch- I'll check the next episode. Like, maybe they... I don't think... Th- this probably also wouldn't make sense, but, you know, if they switch whose name is first, no, that would be too much work. And also, I'm sure Barry Corbin's managers or whoever... Like, got it in his contract that he would be first billed after, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually a good question. Who do you think should be billed first after Rob Morrow leaves? Like, Paul is taking the place, but obviously, you know, Phil is taking the place, but obviously Paul Provenza is, like, more of a guest star. Mm-hmm. I guess now he's, like, he's a lead, but still.
2: Uh, practical answer, whoever has the most talented manager. that's true (laughs) that that is what's going to decide it
1: I would have expected I think Barry Corbin makes a lot of sense yeah as being like a bigger name now like today it's like John Corbett is kind of like the biggest name to come you know from Northern Exposure after Rob Morrow Janine Turner I think would have made sense to to put up there but Mm -hmm. again yeah maybe just uh, Barry Corbin's got that good uh, (laughs) that good manager anyway uh, let's dive into the plot uh, of Little Italy. That plot line with Phil um, kind of opens up with Phil in his office, giving Maurice a shot. Don't know exactly what it's for. So probably some immunization, you know. Um, and he continues to uh, talk about this smell that he, that he experienced the other day and uh, how it brought back his memories. Maurice pretends to have no idea of what Phil could be talking about, but there's like a moment when Phil steps away. And I almost think it's, it might be a rack focus, but there's definitely like a shot where Phil exits the shot and then Marilyn looks at Maurice, like they're still in the shot. And Marilyn kind of shoots him like a knowing glance as if, you know, Maurice doesn't want to talk about something. I mean, basically the, the whole thing is uh, Maurice is trying to keep this Italian restaurant that he likes, um, this Sicilian sorry, this Italian restaurant in the town of Sicily, uh, Sicily, Alaska, he wants it to remain a secret. Um, but there's a, a few bits of key info we get in this opening scene. You know, finally, I think it's Marilyn who who says there's a little Italy uh, in in uh, Sicily. There's four Italian families here. Apparently there used to be five, but the four are the Cusamanos, the Grippos, the Trapanis, and the Masellos. We've definitely heard the name Grippo before. Pretty sure Connie Grippo is mentioned, the name Connie Grippo and Lowell Grippo. Like they probably call into the radio station or people just, whenever they're like reaching for a town's, the name of a townsperson, they say like Lowell Grippo or Connie Grippo. So I'm glad that we actually finally see, I feel like the, uh, did you recognize the name Charles?
2: Yeah, I recognize Lowell Grippo. Okay. Definitely recognize him. For As for the other Italians, no, I, I don't recognize them <laughs> at all. I wanted to quickly come in and say that I don't know if that's a rack focus, the uh, okay. scene that you pointed out. It's uh, timestamp 226. And the reason why I don't know is because Maurice's face is in focus. But then when Marilyn shoots him that knowing glance, Maurice turns his head to Marilyn to also look at her. Mm-hmm. And when he turns his head, it's hard to know whether or not that's in focus or if it's just the fact of him turning his head that allows uh it's to like fall to out like,
1: of focus. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I think it's a little
1: bit hard to know. It is. A, I just looked at it. It's a rack focus. It's a rack focus. It's kind of, I'm also watching the DVD rip right now. So I, mm-hmm. it's hard to really see. I'm sure like the Blu-ray version would be a little clearer, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very minimal. It's like not a, it's not a, Um, it's not a very uh, over the top rack focus. It's purely just like, you know, Maurice turns his head to look at Marilyn and then the camera focuses mm-hmm. on her. So it's not like Maurice is thrown completely soft, you know, completely like blurry, you know, uh-huh. um, it's just like the camera has to like, has to focus up a little bit uh, be- just because the depth, like they're so far apart in that uh, mm-hmm. depth of focus. How do you actually
2: effectively pull it off the rack focus? Is that just naturally what will happen if you just focus the lens, like the focal length of it, to try to get onto Marilyn?
1: Yeah, you have to kind of like turn the lens to focus. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously it is an effect, but it's also sort of out of necessity. Because a lot of times, especially because Marilyn's further away from the camera than Maurice is, Maurice is close to the camera in this shot, mm-hmm. The camera just actually can't put those two things in focus at the same time because their right, depth—they're right. on different planes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it can be done with certain lenses and with certain light, um, but maybe there might be some instances where it's impossible to put two objects uh, in focus if they're split apart like that um, along what is the z-axis. Go ahead.
2: What is it called that you've talked about it before? Oh yeah, where
1: it can put both objects in the same one. What is that called? So we talked about this a few times on our Patreon episode for Quiz Show because this shot is used often. It's a um, split diopter, and I should look it up mm-hmm. now because I wasn't entirely sure. I think it's like a, um, I think it's like a filter that you put over the lens, um, but it basically, in a way, I guess a simple way of describing it and this could be wrong, I'm not a camera person really, but um, it's kind of like bifocals. You know how you have um, glasses where like Mm -hmm. part of the lens is one focal intensity, I guess, and then the bottom part is like a different one. Um, So the split diopter would work much the same at some point along this filter. Usually it's like directly in the center of the filter. One side is one focal length and the other side's another. So in that way... You can have someone close to the camera on one side of the lens, you know being focused on the other side of the lens that would also be in focus. but a lot of times in those shots you can sort of see that um, seam going down the middle. So it's either very obvious or like it's sometimes hidden with like part of the set or part of the production design. a really mm-hmm. good um, a really good split diopter shot it's like hard to tell where the seam is and you're like, whoa, how did they do that? It does – it looks um, a little unnatural sometimes, but it's kind of a stylized look.
2: And that's to pertain whenever people are on different planes, right, in order to get exactly. them both in focus? Right. Okay, so if they both. were both if, – if Marilyn was, like, pushed up to the front of the camera, like, she wasn't at the cabinet. She was, like, yeah. literally staring right in front of Maurice. This would not have to happen, right? It would be like a lot easier. In focus?
1: Yeah, it would be a lot of easier to put them in focus. A lot of factors go in, like, the amount of light, um, the uh, – Lens length, like if it's a wider lens or a, a more telephoto lens, those all come into play with like how much you can put in focus or how how deep your field of focus is. In this case, the depth between, like the the distance between Marilyn and um, Maurice, is very long. But if you can make that more shallow, closer together, um, you might be able to put them both in focus, depending on the lens oh. you got. Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm going to smash cut Rebecca. All right. And this is where I thought the first conflict of the episode was going to arise. In that, I thought this was going to be like the major thing to argue about, which is that Maurice says that he wants to keep it hidden because he's afraid that too many people going to that restaurant will ruin it. It's going to be like, oh, it became too successful. So they have to find shortcuts to serve that many people. They have to find roundabout ways to achieve what they used to have. So that's what he was worried about. And I thought that the episode was going to go toward that direction. I was very pleased that like, that's only like a small part. Like that just leads, that's just a breadcrumb leading to the larger scheme.
1: Yeah. Pretty sure like the next scene, which I don't want to get to just yet, but I'm pretty sure it's like, like Phil doesn't even have to go searching. It's just like, he's already like, they're just going to the restaurant in the next scene. So it's like, the it's just, this is more about setting up that mystery of it. Um, But it's not... Phil trying to convince Maurice or Phil like asking everyone in town, like, what's the password? You know, stuff like that. Like, no, mm-hmm. they just go straight into the Italian restaurant pretty soon. Um, I did want to talk about, I'm pretty sure we already probably had a conversation like this on the podcast before. But the idea of um, having like a favorite or some of your favorite spots and restaurants that you don't want to become too popular. Is that is that a practice? Is that something that, that you've got? Uh, Charles.
2: Okay, so like at the beginning of the podcast, I would have had an answer for you um, because that was before COVID. But now like after COVID, I, don't, like, I, don't, I no longer care.
1: I just, just like, like yeah, I don't, I, don't even, I don't care.
2: Yeah, I don't even need out that much anymore
1: after COVID. Hey, that's good. I but mean... Life has uh, changed. Yeah, life has changed.
2: Uh, I saw a question the other day where I was saying like, would you want your favorite show to be completely unknown or would you want it to be extremely famous? And for all the people to see it. And Mm, there's two mm -hmm. schools of thought behind that. One is that like you want it to be really famous because then the show creators and all the people involved get the recognition they deserve. And you can share that experience with all the other people. And then the other side of the coin is that something is so special to you that it, you know, gives you like an evangelical zeal when you read, watch, or view it. When you read or watch it, that – You want that experience to be special to you. And so you don't want to share it.
1: I feel like there would definitely be some unforeseen consequences to my favorite show becoming like an overnight sensation. But I just can't think of that many. Like, I just, I feel like, for instance, with Northern Exposure, if it were still popular today, you know, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be as hard for people to see it. But then I guess we probably wouldn't have a podcast, Charles. Like probably Rob Morrow would have a podcast about, about Northern Exposure if it was really popular. You know, like probably famous influencers would have this podcast and not us. That is true. Well, okay, we can we can move on to this the next scene, which we kind of already um, talked about. We just go straight to them. They're, they're just going to go cold call this restaurant <laughs> that they heard about. Actually, I don't even think they know what house it is, but they have a general idea maybe because Sicily is so small and then they know that the, um, the restaurant is in a basement and they're maybe just walking around a certain part of town where, uh, well, we do learn later that one of those Italian names, Cusimano is a patient of Phil. So he probably knows where Cusimano's, where they live. So he's probably walking around there looking for what house might have a basement, feels very weird just to like randomly go knock on some people's doors, but this is Sicily. It's whatever. Um, the door, by the way, is answered by a man in like a tuxedo suit or something. It's very like Mater D style and doesn't want to let Phil inside. It's kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about, but pretty immediately a, um, I don't know, like an Italian looking guy uh, comes to the door as well. He's got a very like.
2: That's a, um, that's um um,
1: Grippo. Oh yeah, Grippo. Lowell Grippo, right? He comes to the door, yeah. kind of has a very angry, sort of stern look. Um, just a uh, suspicious, a suspicious look. But then as soon as he hears the name Capra, he welcomes them in. It's like Italians are here. You know, they must have some Italian history or something. Um, very fancy inside. I really like the low light, the candles. There's a sort of a calming music in the background. Seems like a pretty legit, Space Like, uh, they've got a wine list that Phil says is incredible. I wrote down that they order the Brunello. Uh, Maurice is there. He gives him, like, a little tip of the hat. Um, also, Ruthann and Walt are there. Ruthann recommends the Ptarmigan Cacciatore. Again, like the... I remember exactly what the bird is, but like the ptarmigan is uh, some some ptarmigan is the uh, state bird of Alaska. I thought that was funny.
2: It's like a pigeon, basically. Yeah, <laughs> I, I
1: looked into it. I was like, it's
2: very closely related to that. That's pretty cool. Well, as legitimate looking as it is, I don't think it's an actual legitimate place. <laughs> Wait, wait. No way! They have an alcohol license over oh, there. yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a basement. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Th- yeah. As Maurice had said in the earlier scenes, like it's not really much of a restaurant. It's just like sometimes Mama Grippo cooks a little extra, and sometimes she serves that to some of her friends in her basement. It's like very exclusive yeah. But there's no sounding. way.
2: There's no way they're paying taxes on this. Oh hell no! Yeah, <laughs>
1: this is not like a business enterprise. <laughs> oh, we should say the um the name of the restaurant is Stella del Nord, which. If my Italian's any good, it sounds like it's a star of the north, probably. Um oh. I wrote down – oh, yeah. I wrote this down. I thought that this is a pretty cool sort of bit of world building sort of late in the series, you know? Example, uh, we have like the, the laundromat that comes in season five, I want to say. And it's like, wait, has the laundromat been there this whole time? Or maybe what happened was like Maurice bought it and like, you know, souped it up. We never got an episode about that. But like all of a sudden, everyone's going to the laundromat in season five. And then there's like, I want to say like certain things like the Coho wins. It's like, how come- Joel never experienced the Coho winds like the first year that he was in Sicily. It's only hitting him like the 3rd or 4th or 5th year in Sicily. What's neat about this like secret uh little Italy, it makes sense it's like we're not blindsided being like how come no one knows about the little Italy in Sicily? It's so it's got such a vibrant culture. Well, the way it's introduced is it is sort of like a hidden secret that Maurice doesn't want to get out. Like he likes this as his own private little restaurant. Also, apparently they haven't had a um, St. Joseph's day parade, um, which is something they talk about in this episode. They haven't had that for eight or nine years. So it makes sense. Like we've, we haven't really seen at least publicly in Sicily, the Italian community, which is like four families, but, but still I like that it, it's this nestled secret that is very vibrant uh sort of culture within sicily
2: yeah i agree i'm a big fan of that as well building into the mythos of uh, i almost got a little sicily which is kind
1: of <laughs> wait which is we should sorry we should talk yeah, about that cuz yeah. they could have just called it little sicily like sicily yeah. from italy <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: that's so funny. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really great call for them to still have that card in their hand right at the end of the show's run, still keep that in. And yeah, as the dinner scene continues, we can see that it gets more and more Italian. <laughs> as Phil starts talking a little bit more in Italian, it's, um, it's a great Mike Birbiglia joke. I, I want to say he used it when he was on an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where he says that, I'm Italian, but I'm like, I'm like olive garden Italian.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Yeah. uh, Michelle in this episode says like, you don't speak, you speak Italian. All right. Yeah. Like restaurant menu Italian or something like that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And and they bring out like all these uh, foods and things related to Italy. Yeah. We can obviously see it's having a positive impact on Phil. It's having a great time. And he invites Lo Grippo to thank him for this by giving him his favorite cigar, and they sit down and just start
1: reminiscing about their roots, about their family heritage in Italy. Yeah, there's also like a a little moment. I didn't like read too much into it. I wonder what we can interpret from it. But um, the at the very least, I thought it was interesting. We get like um, I think it's like the Mater D. He's like sitting down eating himself like maybe taking a break, uh, having a little having a little bite to eat. And he starts speaking Italian to an older lady there. Maybe that's Mama Grippo. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're speaking in Italian, it's subtitled, and they're just talking about um, a beautiful Coacuto deer mask that they saw in Sleep Mute the other day. Just different um, artisan wares and things like that. That's kind of, it's just so interesting to hear Italian, uh, people speaking the Italian language, but talking about this local sort of Alaskan culture. I uh, thought that was just an interesting meeting of two cultures.
2: Right. And I do think it comes into play at the end of the episode, which we'll get to very okay. soon right there. But I think that this scene ends on a very important note where Phil and Lowe say that they are Campari. So now it's established that they are companions. Is that what party translates to? I don't to?
1: know. Yeah, like friends. Yeah, you know, at least at least we understand there's like a friendship that they, um, sort of an allegiance to each other. That's a good way to put it. And in the next scene with Phil, he's walking around with Lowell. They're walking around the uh, so-called Little Italy, like the different houses down there. And <laughs> I didn't write down the exact dialogue, but I wrote down that Lowell freaking hates Joe Cusimano. You know, maybe it's... um. It's mentioned that uh, Phil is uh, Joe Cusimano's doctor. Like uh, Joe is one of his patients. And um, Lowell just quickly, you know, it's it's understood that he's got some beef with Joe. Um, and even as they're walking around, they find uh, yet another thing that, that you know, adds to the stack of transgressions that Joe has brought upon Lowell Um Lowell's, uh, kicking around his front yard and he sees like a patch of dog pee in the snow, like Joe's dog peed on Lowell's lawn and he starts kicking it over into Joe's lawn. And then I think, uh, you know, it's just like, it all escalates really quickly because Joe, uh, runs out of his house, their neighbors there and the houses are right next door Joe Cusimano's there. I guess his wife is there. I think her name's Angie. We'll see. It's in a later scene where we see her again. But yeah, it just like quickly boils over. Uh, Lowell and Joe are yelling at each other, and Phil is kind of drawn into this. Uh, but it almost uh, the it resolves with sort of um, Phil, you know, more or less like on um, Lowell's side, or at least that's how it how it appears.
2: Right. And I I wanted to quickly mention that I really like the scenery of this scene. Because oftentimes in Northern Exposure, especially in Season 6, it mostly feels like they're enclosed in buildings or rooms where uh, it's a little bit more cramped just, you know, by logistical reasons of being inside a building yeah but now that they're walking outside in little italy you got this wide blue sky with them very open very expansive it feels very freeing especially as low is explaining the history of little italy it's almost like unraveling the entire thing i was a really big fan of it the camera was going along with it smoothly i was having a great time as <laughs> uh when he was explaining the folks of the place and i do want to note that i think it's interesting that when they get into an argument the Grippos and the and the Cusimanos, Lowell says that in anger he's going to like tear down his James Joyce and that uh, Mark Chagall, which I thought was really interesting because as most people know, James Joyce is an Irish novelist and Chagall was a Belarusian and French artist. I think he's insinuating that Joe is not really Italian. Cause he's saying they're like, oh, well, you like Joyce, you like Chagall. Those aren't Italian things. Yeah. Get out of here.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, that that's definitely what it is. It's like you're venerating these uh, artists of other nationality. Like you should be celebrating mm-hmm. Michelangelo. And sorry, that's just like I'm trying to think of a generic. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not cultured. Um, but you know, like you should. You should be celebrating those Italian artists instead. Uh that's right. good. That's good. That's what, I, yeah. Th- I kind of let that fly over my head. So.
2: Also, in this uh, this scene it reminds me so much of the intro scene of Borat. You know where he goes and he gets <laughs> like infuriated his neighbor. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> we could probably put the soundbite right here.
0: <laughs> he is my neighbor, to the Tulyagbai. He is paying my. I get a window from a glass, he must get a window from a glass. I get a step, he must get a step. I get a clock radio, he cannot afford. Great success.
1: Just something I wanted to quickly say before we leave this scene. um, During the argument, Phil brings up Joe's ulcer, because obviously Phil is Joe's doctor. And he knows that Joe's got an ulcer and, um, Phil says something like, I gotta, you know, I have to prescribe you Zantac every week cause you don't, you know, I told you to lay off the scotch or something. Um, so yeah, Phil is, uh, yeah, I'm just remembering now, Phil's kind of getting, getting a little down and dirty in this, um, in this argument here. He's definitely taking a little side, but I wanted to talk about Zantac you know, just looked that up whenever I heard that, uh, that medicine, coincidentally, that was pulled from the market completely, um, by 2021. I think earlier certain, um, territories, regions, you know, countries were pulling it because it contained, uh, carcinogens or something like that. It was like known to cause cancer. Um, oh, so wow. yeah, very, um, you know, Zantec is a very, I guess, uh, it's a thing of the past.
2: Interesting. Relic of the 90s, right there. Yeah. And you're right. Phil is definitely more on the side of the Grippos because when we get to the next scene with him and Michelle, he, he's just recounting what just happened that afternoon and he's totally on his side. Whereas Michelle is saying that they should settle it out and apologize and, you know, try to handle this like civilized people. And this is also where we see that Phil has become more and more Italian. And <laughs> Michelle makes the note that, like, you get like this every time you watch a Martin Scorsese picture. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> That's hilarious. Good,
1: it's a great line. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, all the, all the, you know, while Michelle is like, you got to call Joe up. He's your patient. You got to call him up and apologize. As she's like trying to convince him of that. Um Phil is just kind of like looking through some CDs in a cardboard box and he pops something into his like hi-fi and starts blaring like opera music and he does like the very generic like la 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 la, la. Like, like he starts singing <laughs> as Michelle's trying to get a point across and he almost like he has to it's I think it's pretty comic um Phil is like singing and then like immediately like has to cut himself off and be like no it's it's not like that you know you don't understand um, I wrote down. I thought this was a fun quote. He says, "It's like comparing Cleveland and Cincinnati. I mean, you're either a Browns fan or you're a Bengals fan. You can't be both." The idea here being, like, there you're all Italian here, but um, Phil's like, "No, no, no. He's from you know the boot, and we're from like the knee or whatever of Italy. Like, it's like we're we're completely different parts of you know completely different families."
2: Yeah. And he says all this while calling him a cafone, mm. which is, uh, I looked it up, it means buffoon or peasant. Nice. And he's trying to cook up some zeppola? Zeppola? Yeah, I don't ze- know if I'm pronouncing that right.
1: Zeppola or something. Yeah. I'm probably getting the pronunciation wrong as well, but they do, I feel like that's uh, what he ends up trying to make later as well for the parade. But he's like, I'm looking for the, that's what it was. In this scene, he's like, where's my uh, mother's recipe for a zeppoli or whatever, a zeppola? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's a deep fried dough fritter thing. Filled nice. with uh, all sorts of things—sugar, custard, jelly, whatever you want.
1: <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I guess I haven't brought it up just yet, but we will be talking about it. So maybe, we, maybe this is a good little segue—the uh, feast of San Giuseppe, uh, which is like Saint Joseph's Day. Are you familiar at all with this uh, celebration?
2: No, I am not. Honestly, I thought they made it up for Northern Exposure.
1: Right. It is a real thing. And obviously, um, you know, neither of us are Christian, Catholic, like that's not- Or we, Italian. We Or Italian. Hey, I'm a quarter Italian.
2: Oh, okay. Um, I so maybe,
1: you know, uh, but I, I had never known this growing up. I'd never known about this. It seems like a very Catholic thing, maybe Christian thing. But um, I, I have actually um, experienced uh, the St. Joseph's Day feast, I think two years in a row now. One of my- Uh, band members uh, does it every year, has like an altar set up. In fact, it's surprisingly a very New Orleans thing. Um, In fact, if you go to St. Joseph's Day Wikipedia page, if you look up um, the different celebrations, there's like uh, Christian traditions all across the world, different types of um, different ways they celebrate. If you look at the entry for United States, the first thing is about New Orleans. Um, Let's see if I can read just a little bit for some context. So New Orleans was a major port entry for Sicilian immigrants, that's the Sicily and Italy, um, during the late 19th century. And uh, the Feast of St. Joseph's Day is a citywide event. Both public and private St. Joseph's altars are traditionally built. And like I said, one of my friends, she she builds her own altar, something that her family would do, and she wanted to kind of keep that tradition up. Um, it says here on Wikipedia, these altars traditionally built, especially in and around the Lake Vista neighborhood, not going to dox her, but that was actually, she does actually live in that area. (laughs) So it's very, um, that's kind of crazy. It's very uh, popular around there. Um, but I mean, you can kind of look it up online to see, but these altars, um, at least in my experience, they... You put food out and you put like um, pictures of your ancestors, different uh, Christian imagery. There's a lot there's a lot of things that go on the altar and each of them have their own like little meaning. And I feel like I learned a little bit more about St Joseph's Day. I mean this is the second year like I said we did it this past year. Um, but it's fun. I mean like we just like you know a lot of you know it wasn't like a necessarily religious thing, but more of just like a communal family tradition. And uh, everyone brought different food. There's like a um, there's like a cake like in the shape of a little baby lamb or something like that. That was really fun. Or our bread sculptures is like a very I don't know if that's a New Orleans thing or just Saint Joseph's Day thing in general. Lots of different Italian pastries and candies and things like the I'm um, the zippolea I think would fit right in. And I do remember this past year they made this really intense like very complex red sauce, like a pasta sauce, but it had like so many different, you know, spices in it. And also like felt like it was like lots of like anchovy. It had like a very fishy and um, spiced. Yeah, it was just very complex flavor. Not a huge fan of that, but it was just interesting that uh, there's a special name for it too. Like, I don't know if it's a St. Joseph's thing or just an Italian thing, but uh,
2: when, uh, when does that
1: happen? It is, uh, I mean, that was kind of around Easter, but let's see. Um, I asked this because
2: there's snow on the ground in Sicily. So I'm wondering if you yeah. can like try to chronologically place this.
1: Okay. It occurs inside Lent. So it's during Lent and it says on the usual date of 19 March. Which is crazy. I feel like it would just, you know how like Easter is different every year? Mm-hmm. I guess Christmas is always on the 25th of December. So yeah, I guess it's always March 19th. Um, hmm. And the again, the air date of this episode was March 15th. So perfect uh, kind of timing there.
2: Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's move on and see how this feast plays out. We see Ed in his substantive role in this episode, which is being a soundboard for Dr. <laughs> Capra for
1: him to exchange Scorsese lines right there. Pretty good. Yeah. They, I feel like this is not the only scene where this happens, but they're like quoting, I want to say it's all De Niro impressions from Cor- Scorsese movies, but it might be just various characters. They're kind of doing this little uh, back and forth impressions. They're in Ruthann's store and Joe Cusimano enters. And there's a very dynamic, uh, stylized sort of staring contest between Phil and Joe. There's like the extreme close-ups. And I believe this is one example of like a very obvious rack focus, I want to say, Mm -hmm. happens in here where we like – throw everything out else out of focus, and we just see Joe Cusimano's sort of glaring.
2: Yeah, I've expressed this before on the pod, but I am just, I think extreme close-up of eyes in live action, it, it just looks odd. It looks off. There's something just very strange yeah. about it, which I look at it, yeah. and I know they're trying to convey grave seriousness in the scene, but i uh, I can't buy it. And it's yeah. not like it's silly
1: or funny. I'm not saying that. It's just when I look at it, it just seems off. It's very stylized. Yeah, it's like not super realistic. Like when are you ever that close as a person? You'll never get like that close to that, you know, that person, you know, someone's face like that. But I guess the intention of the director is to be like, uh, point out like they just want you to stare at that person's eyes. Like that's what's important. This uh, mm-hmm. this sort of locking – locking a, um, staring contest that they're having so yeah but I mean I also agree yeah it kind of feels to me it always feels like um like comic book or maybe animation that makes a lot of sense uh kind of anime or something like where you go really close on on someone's eyes but um well those make
2: sense because their eyes are allowed to be a lot larger than their faces so mm-hmm. it's more expressive whereas you know in human beings the eyes like you just have to really stare into it and, yeah uh, I don't know I, I'm not <laughs> buying it and while I may not buy it, uh, we see that Joe is buying things because he buys a half pound of provolone cheese and let me see if I can remember it. Oh, I got it. A ream of computer paper.
1: Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, that's pretty much it. They kind of, they don't settle anything here. They're just kind of like the beef is, uh, is strong. The next scene is Michelle. She's out in nature uh, photographing a, I want to say that's a woodpecker. I don't know if there's like a specific type of woodpecker. She snaps a little photo and she's ready to leave, but her car won't start. And someone drives by quickly. Uh, You know, thankfully Michelle is able to flag them down. And it's Angela Cusimano. So that's, you know, we learned that this is, uh, or I guess we may have seen her in that previous scene where they're fighting on the lawn. I can't remember. But um, this is Joe's wife. So because the Cusumanos have beef with the Capras, she's not going to give Michelle a jump. Um, She's going to, she's like, I don't think we, I don't think I can help you, Michelle. I'm sorry. Like she starts to drive away and she's like, I'm going to call, I'm going to, you know, I'll stop at the service station ahead and I'll let someone know that you're out here. So it's just funny. It's like kind of petty. It's like, Angela wants Michelle to get a jump, but she's just like, can't do it herself because of, um, uh, because of this, like this feud.
2: And that brings us to the next scene where we're seeing the aftermath of the, the incident. Michelle was fine. Um, oh yeah, the gas station. Angela had called a gas station for her mm, okay. and she had managed to make it back home. But Phil is furious because she was left out there by herself. She could have been eaten by a bear according to him <laughs> yeah. or froze to death. And he calls Lowell Grippo to tell him all about this. And Lowell Grippo invites him to dinner. Michelle doesn't want to go. But Phil gets is his like peak Italian where he says, like, no, 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 no. That's, like, super rude of us to <laughs> reject another man's offer for dinner in Italy. We can't do that. And then he starts saying, like, hey. And he starts being like, just really <laughs> driving into it. And that's what sets Michelle off and says, like, this, you're okay. Let me call you out because you're being ridiculous mm-hmm. right now. This is not you. And you don't know the Grippos at all, and yet you're calling them family. And Phil says, You
1: know what? You don't have to know it. Sometimes you just feel it. Yeah, I'll play the soundbite. It's a pretty good uh, performance. This Italian stuff is driving me nuts, Phil. It's time to come home. See, that's what you don't understand. In the middle of nowhere, in Sicily, Alaska,
0: I have finally found my home. The Grippos are not family, Phil. You barely know them. Look,
1: I know this seems strange to you, but some things you don't have to know. Some things you just have to feel. I thought that was pretty good, and it's like a powerful thematic statement, but I wonder, does it, to you, does that connect to anything else in the episode uh, thematically? Like, is that a message that the episode, I don't know if that's necessarily the message of this plot line, but it it is a, it's like a, there's a good word for this, but it's like a point of view. You know, it's an interesting idea.
2: I I think that like, I think that one of the main themes of this episode is um, a communication and also adapting to who you are and pushing it forward instead of just remaining in the past. That's more relevant in this plot line. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhat relevant in Ruth Ann's plotline as well. But the idea that you're trying to propose, um, some things you don't know, you just feel it. And your home being your roots. Uh maybe someone else much more smarter than us can actually <laughs> connect that. But for me, I feel like that's more of a line that's mostly for the character of Phil. And I'm not too sure if that leads anywhere yeah. throughout the other plot lines.
1: But it's a good, it's a good line. I like it. Um, all right. So The next scene, Lowell lights up a cigar with Phil. And Michelle is kind of off to the side drinking coffee or something. So they they do go out to uh, Stella del Nord for dinner that night. Um, Lowell says that the Cusumanos, every year they spoil the Feast of San Giuseppe. And um, Michelle asks, well, how did it get started? And it's uh, La Busta. So Phil explains uh, that the booster, when somebody dies, it's customary for the family to give a boosta. It's like a boost to help the family defray the funeral expenses. And Lowell tells us that the kusamanas only gave uh, a uh, boosta of $5, which is, you know, uh, chicken feed or whatever. <laughs> it's like nothing. <laughs> um, someone someone passed away. It was like a, um, must've been a, a relative or someone in the community Let's see. Lowell says he's going to go as far as building a wall between their two houses. He really um, wants to wedge a division there. And this is kind of all offset by uh, a young girl, a little girl entering the scene with, uh, I guess that's Mama Grippo as well. It's like the granddaughter or something. Uh, she's in a, um, a lovely like patron dress is what it's called, or what Michelle calls it later. It's just this white dress. It's um, the the grandmother character says that this little girl wanted to show off her new dress for um, St. Joseph's Day. And Michelle ends the scene by pointing out this um, sort of uh, double standard. Is that what you would call it? Where she says, one minute you're plotting against your neighbor. And the next, you're fawning over a little girl's patron dress for a Catholic holiday honoring the patron saint of all families, of community. And Lowell's like, Lowell's like, yeah, what? what, do you, what is it? What do I care? Or whatever.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like hypocrisy right there of what he's trying mm. to espouse. There you go. And is it just me or is that sh- the shot reverse shot between Michelle and Grippo? Is that a little bit off to
1: you? To me, I thought it was like really strangely shot. Oh, let me check it. Yeah, I guess like typically you have uh, matching coverage. But I mean, I don't know if that's like a, a, a has to be a rule. Oh, Oh, no, that makes sense now. Um, but yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I guess um, f- from what I can tell, Lowell has like a single and then Michelle is in a two, sort of like an over the, the shoulder. Two shot? She's like an over the shoulder.
2: Oh, okay. Is that normal for a shot reverse shot?
1: Um, I don't want to say what's normal. I mean, that's just like what they decided to shoot. I guess like you could, you could just make everyone's coverage the same and it matches. But then also that's kind of just like by the numbers, you know?
2: Yeah, like I get the subtext behind it. It's like, okay, so you want him in the single because he's evaluating this question on his own and it mm-hmm. doesn't involve Michelle at all. So like the onus is on him. That's why he's in the single. I get that, but like for some reason when I watched this and I re-watched it, I was like, it like subconsciously hit into my brain. I was like, something's off about this. Mm-hmm. And I watched it. I was like, why is this off to me?
1: And I guess, I I don't know. I guess I don't have a really good answer for it. You don't, it could just there's be, nothing off about this to you? I mean, uh, it's fine. It's fine. It could just be that, um... The eye line might be a little weird between the two of them because, uh, because their coverage doesn't match exactly. Like it's not like a one for one, like, you know, Lowell has Mm -hmm. a one shot, um, has a single and Michelle doesn't have a single. Um, so the eye line may be a little weird, but it didn't throw me off too much really. I think, I think that's excusable. I don't think that, I think that's a good, you know, I, I, I like when coverage isn't like, doesn't have to be close up, close up. You know, medium white, like it's mm. just like standard. Right, right, right. It's not too standard.
2: Okay, got it. It Was this sure draw I wasn't going crazy, which apparently I am. So no, there I we
1: mean, go. no. You noticed you're you're pointing out what's what's there. You know, that's actually that is the thing. It's like you know their their coverage is not matching exactly. So
2: you're not you're not you going go. crazy. <laughs> and now we return back to Phil and Ed exchanging lines. This time from Goodfellas, having a good time with their. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to quickly say. Uh, So there's, you know, in Goodfellas, there's that famous scene where they're trying to cook that stew. You know how, like, uh, they're narrating how the process of that stew is being made in prison? Mm -hmm. And he says that they use razor-thin garlic, and it melts in the pan. I was listening to the Strike Force 5 podcast. It's where the five talk show hosts get together in order to support the writers for the WGA strike. Oh, nice. And they were talking about having Martin Scorsese on their show. And I think it was Jimmy Kimmel. He asked him. He says, "Like, hey, I've been spending years trying to actually do razor thin garlic <laughs> and trying to get it to actually melt like they do in Goodfellas. Is that real?" And Martin Scorsese it's "Like, no, 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 that's not. You can't do that. That's not <laughs> possible at all."
1: Yeah, I think binging with Babish did did that on an episode. It doesn't. It you know he did. You I think he recreated it. You know, using a razor blade, but it doesn't. You know, it doesn't matter if you use a razor blade versus a, uh, you know, just like a sharp <laughs> knife. Like a knife. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool. It's such a, it obviously has such a lasting, it's, it's a lasting image for the characters of the show. And then even the talk show hosts of today, like 30 years later. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> True. And well, they're having a
2: good time reciting the lines. And then Marilyn comes in and says "Dad." Uh, Joe has actually canceled his appointment and this is where I actually kind of like Phil because Phil doesn't say like, okay, good. Screw him. Like, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to treat him. <laughs> Phil is like, no, like he needs to come in. Yeah. He has a serious problem. Is a medical condition that will not be solved on its own. He needs to come in and see this. And he, if this was like a perfect world and he was a perfect character, he would of course drop the you know, the feud and be like, all right, I'm going over to his house. I'm going to go treat him, yada, yada. But because he's an imperfect character and there are flaws within them, he still doesn't go to that next step. Like he acknowledges that this is wrong. But he also says like, uh, I don't have the, the gumption or like the courage to put this
1: away. Yeah, this is the moment where like he's got clearly like two sides that are, there's a dissonance like between him wanting to be part of uh, an Italian family to somehow reconnect to his past as an Italian family. There's that. And then his idea as like, I mean, I'm a doctor. Like, that's me. Like, I help people. I made, I swore an oath. Like, how can I do both of those when when we're in this situation? And so you're right. It's an imperfect character that will reach, hopefully reach a, um, well, we know, like reaches a... um a positive uh, change in the end. And I think it's really
2: interesting that they end the scene with a button of Ed and Phil, you know, going back and forth again. Mm-hmm. Only this time, Phil's being serious. He's not trying to quote lines. And Ed still thinks they're playing along. And at the end, Phil says, no, I don't, I'm not doing De Niro. I'm tired of it. And I think this is like the turning point for Phil. Yeah. Where he's like he's, he's getting out of the Italianist
1: I love when um when a show or when writing can do this like it's funny because it's almost as if uh, Ed is like stuck, he can't like come out of it, like he's like broken. Um <laughs> so there's a humor to it, but then also like yeah, it serves um a purpose like for this sort of character, this growth in this character as you're saying. Like Phil is like now snapped out of the sort of Italian um Uh, brainwashing or whatever's happening. He's like, (laughs) no, like I'm done with that or whatever. So next we see Phil preparing the Zeppoli or Zeppola. I'm not really sure. And he's listening to that loud Italian opera music and um, the phone is ringing. So he asks Michelle to, uh, to answer it. And um, she does, she talks for a moment that she goes over to Phil and says, it was Lowell. Uh, The feast is canceled. Lowell and Joe had some words today and the feast is canceled. Phil's just says, Oh, and he basically like throws down his preparations, wipes off his hands. Uh, kind of like, you know, he was, he was really into it with the music blaring and the mother's, uh, recipe for the Zeppelin. Um, but it's just like the fun has all been robbed.
2: Right. And this is where we're coming out of the Canyon. Like I said before, Phil is starting to see the bigger picture of what he's been warped into and now he's getting out of it. And so he knows that something needs to be done. And so the next scene, we see a line of cars pouring up to the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, like, mafia-esque, I guess. <laughs> like, well, one person even gets out and he starts smoking. Yeah. He's like, he's <laughs> there to watch. He's there to stand that's, guard. That's
1: what it is, yeah, because the, the, the door opens and, like, this very old, very Italian-looking man exits and then, like, the driver just kind of, you know, leans against the car and lights up the cigarette, like you're saying. It's very much like the... Uh, uh, the getaway driver, or just like the bodyguard, <laughs> you know. Um, or I
2: honestly thought I, I like, I, when I saw this scene, I was like, "Are they about to beat up Joe? Like, is this like, are you pulling <laughs> up the Joe's house about to, to go beat him his, up,
1: break his uh, knees or whatever?" That's yeah, because I
2: thought that like, guy was like, I thought he was like the watch out to make sure like the police didn't come. Oh wow! I was, like, yeah, he's was, the like, watch. What is happening? The lookout. Uh, thankfully, it is not that. What is happening here is that Phil has called together the four families of. Little Italy together so that they can hash this out. And what's really great about this is that Phil is an outsider to all of this. Yeah, his roots are Italian. He's from that specific region of Italy. But as a whole, he came into Sicily as an outsider. And it takes an outsider to see, like, the problems of what's happening in a community. Mm -hmm. Because they're not entrenched in it. And so phil has a macro look at the entire situation he gets them all here and he wants to get everything out on the table they're literally breaking bread right here between the four families and phil has a whole thing about how you know italians they're great they're passionate people they practically invented the vendetta they got all these amazing things about them but we're not in italy anymore we're in america these are the old world ways of thinking and you have to evolve and adapt to how things are currently in the place that you are at. And they have like a bunch of like tit and tat on the immigrant experience, melting mm-hmm. pot, all that. All of them go in and chip it in. Yeah. But Phil is saying like, no, all of that, whatever. That's like a enlightened discussion over beer. What I'm here to discuss mm-hmm. is that like – you cannot remain in the same way that we have been doing because we have canceled the feast way too many times.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: got to just see things through and talk about it. And like I said before, I think it's great that Phil is leading this discussion because this is where his power comes in, in that he's only like Olive Garden Italian. He is <laughs> Scorsese Italian.
1: Yeah.
2: He's still not fully Italian. And that's you – know, his weakness actually gives him his strength.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's like, yeah, his weakness is what makes him the perfect um, protagonist for this, to solve this problem. A couple of funny things I noted, yeah, when he's like listing off, like we're, we're a passionate people. Um, the Italians, like we have, we have inventors, writers, painters, sculptors, um, what much of the world would consider the finest shoes are like made by Italians or something, <laughs> Um and I think it's also very cool that one of the four families is represented by um, a native man. His name is Running Bear. Um, I, I think his full name, but Running Bear um, is, I guess, his title. And it turns out he's Sicilian on his grandfather's side. So he's got, you know, he represents um, one of the four Italian families of this small Alaskan community. I think that's perfect. And um, we learn finally you know, this is how they squash the beef is it all boils back. I mean, it, it's a lot of things, but it all comes back to the busta, the $5 busta that um, the Cusumanos gave. And um, whenever they finally speak this out, whenever um, Lowell explains like, that is what set me off. And I, I could never look at you the same way. Joe Cusumano immediately recognizes no, 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 no. It's supposed to be 25 bills, not just $5, 25 bills in that envelope. Like I put it in an envelope, I gave it to my cousin, Anthony. And then as he's saying this, they quickly start to realize it's like, oh, that like, uh, gaffone or whatever. I don't know. Like, you know, that, (laughs) that idiot Anthony, like, of course, like, why would we trust Anthony with an envelope filled with cash? Um, I believe it was running bear who says, I wondered how he could afford that Raiders jacket. So, what we can assume here, what everyone is thinking and putting together is that this uh, cousin Anthony stole the money and only left $5 in the envelope as the boosta, which started uh, this eight years long feud, maybe more. I don't even know how long this has been going on. You know, this this can tie as well into the um, Shelley and Hauling plotline that we'll get to. But the idea of like a little more open communication could have solved a lot of headache this is the, this is the result of not speaking openly. And I guess like we have Phil as a mediator here. Um, whereas Maggie will be sort of a mediator figure in the other plot line. Um, well, things are going to work out. Uh, in fact, the old gentleman here, the old Italian man asks Phil if he can step outside so that the four families, like the four Italian families can discuss it amongst themselves. And I don't remember it like Phil, I feel like he says, like, of course, or like, great, or like, yes. But the idea is, it's not, it's not like terrible that they're like, okay, Phil, get out of here. You're not, you don't belong. But it's more like, this is good. Like, he's already set this healing in motion. Like, this is where they need to be.
2: Mm -hmm. And presumably, they settle out, uh, buried the hatchet right there. Mm -hmm. And I really like how it resolves in that Phil is anxiously waiting for the results outside the church. And then they all step out to be like, business is finished. Mm -hmm. And then the old man, the most Italian looking of them all, comes to Phil and speaks to him in Italian and presumably tells him the result of what just happened. And then Phil shakes his head and he's like, all right, that's good. Great. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's really important that it kind of ends with uh, this fellow speaking in Italian and not English Mm -hmm. to tell him.
1: It's like, all right, you kind of earned it now. Yeah. You are part of us. You're part of the Italian family. Yeah. And I like that we don't get the subtitles. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just my way of looking at it. You can interpret it in a lot of ways, but like one way you can think is like, Phil doesn't speak Italian, so he has no idea what this guy is saying. But the fact that he's speaking Italian to him and the fact that, uh, oh my God, this is the quote. It's like, uh, you know, some some things you don't have to know, some things you just feel. Like this is Mm. Phil, he's feeling, like he understands, he already knows. He doesn't speak Italian, but because of their connection- as Italians as their culture as their families they have this connection they can understand each other um, there we go it. that's that we, we we threaded the needle there takes to tangle yeah there's a um there is a uh, feast of san giuseppe parade which we get to see which is nice lots of dollar bills um pinned onto uh, Was well, that like, is it Jesus or Mary? I don't know. It's like some Christian. I didn't even like- A religious look. figure. <laughs> yeah, religious figure. Um, they have like, they're kind of parading around and uh, Ruthann and Chris are watching this through the K-Bear window. We'll get to that in their storyline. But yeah, uh, all is well. Uh, Little Italy is going to thrive uh, for now, you know, in, in Sicily. Uh, let's, let's reel it back to the beginning and what plot line should we focus on? Let's talk
2: about Maggie and hauling and Shelly.
1: I like that. So we uh, kind of start that plot line with hauling in the brick, trying to run a credit card on the little credit card uh, machine. But yeah, I don't, you know, we never see, I don't think we ever see stuff like that in the brick. Uh, and we do learn that this is a somewhat new machine. Oh, it's Hayden, it's Hayden Key's card. And he's like, come on, hauling, like I've been waiting around. And uh, Shelly has to come in and and teach hauling once again like this is probably the third or fourth time she's taught him how to use the the new machine quote unquote she says something like you know uh, Miranda's going to learn how to use this thing before you do she says you take the tables I'll take the register or pretty soon we're going to be serving these people breakfast so like she's really kind of um, putting it down hard on on hauling here and we cut to a little aside with Eugene and Marilyn Eugene kind of whispers or kind of says to her in an aside that hauling he never gets mad at Shelley and she can get on him all he does is a smile so we get the sense that uh yeah I mean at least the the setup of this is they want us to understand that this is common that Shelley is very mean to hauling and he uh, doesn't retaliate
2: yeah and of course it's hating keys that's being <laughs> you know just like inconsiderate. <laughs> like well, it was like his only role in the town of Sicily is like, all right, if we need to like cut to a caffone. He's going to be it. <laughs> this is our man. <laughs> and yeah, that's basically set up the scene. And initially when I watched this, I thought that they were trying to do a parallel between the brick and the Italian restaurant because they were trying to make a statement about how ah. success ruins you. Interesting. So I was like, oh, OK, is this like where the plot line is going? But no, it's just like. A little setup to Shelly and Hauling's problem, which is going to be exasperated in the next scene. Uh, like 10 minutes down the road, actually. It's quite a while. Right. Where we see them back at the brick, and, and they're trying to set up for the Giuseppe feast. And there's these little flags that Hauling likes to use to put up on the tables. And it turns out that Shelly actually threw them away last month because, well, they were taking up room. She thought there was too much stuff. He's too much of a pack rat. Keeps too many things but she didn't tell hauling that
1: yeah I mean she gives the excuse it's like we haven't had this uh, feast in over eight years and always gets canceled at the last minute so like why are we hanging on to these decorations um, but hauling I don't know if he made this clear to her but he definitely really liked those decorations I think he would all it says he was always um, put them up you know he'd always decorate for it um, he ends up having an outburst uh, because of this. Because uh, he's so angry, he, like, kicks some crates, um, knocks over, like, some trays or some muffin tins or something like this, like some metal trays, and he punches the uh, taxidermy moose head off the wall. And um, he just says, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, like, even though he's clearly not fine. <laughs> like anybody
2: could see. It's like, he's clearly not okay right the here. Whole, yeah, all the people in <laughs>
1: the brick are... You know, their attention is now on him.
2: Right. And that tension is still kind of followed through on a next scene between them, which is, again, back in the brick, where Shelly acts as a patron. And she says, I would like to order one tequila sunrise, please. And Hauling uh, coldly serves it to her and says, if you're expecting an apology from me, you will not be getting this. And they kind of trade back and forth between the two characters. But we can see that, like, it's not going anywhere.
1: Yeah. Shelly wraps her nails on the bar, like, come on, pick it up, pick up the speed. And Holling says, I'm waiting for an apology. That's basically that scene, like they kind of, you know, very passive aggressive, they're very standoffish. When finally, later in the episode, Holling and Shelly go all the way to Maggie's house very late at night. And um, Holling is asking for some help here. And he lets Maggie know that uh, in her capacity as the mayor of Sicily, Uh, this is, uh, kind of written into the charter. It's like a mayoral power that, uh, you might have to, uh, mediate, um, between married couples. He's like, I did that many times when I was a mayor. It was, uh, considered, um, ensuring domestic tranquility. That was one of the, um, he calls them mayoral powers, but that sounds like a responsibility or, um, a duty, you know? Right. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, Maggie's like, well you know, if it's in the charter, I'm going to, I'll give it a try. Let's, let's see what, uh, see if I can help you. You know I mean? She just, she wants her friends to be happy. So we don't immediately get into the sort of counseling session yet. It's later in the episode. It's actually at Maggie's cinema. I'm really glad that they brought this back because we just, you know, I mean, there is a, what is it? The mommy's curse at the end of that episode. um, Maggie is thinking about Maybe buying the old cinema that closed down. And then just last episode that we watched, The Graduate, she opens up her cinema. So, like, I'm glad that they keep that running in this episode. Um, She's there because it's short-staffed. So she has to work the lobby while also giving counseling to Shelley and Holling, who are there with her, like, in the lobby. And Holling starts complaining about uh, Shelly not returning videotapes. Um, Just he starts listing a bunch of different things. And um, Shelly's more interested in the movie. Like she starts peeking into the little cinema, like looking behind the curtain, what's playing. It's, It's just kind of like we get the sense that Holling has a lot of he has a lot of issues with how Shelley is acting, but he hasn't ever said anything to her because Maggie's like, uh, okay, well, then what did you tell Shelley then? Like when she did that, what did you say to her? And he's like, oh, nothing. Um, so we got our first little exercise where Maggie says, pretend that Shelley's not here. Tell me what you would like to tell Shelley. And it's hard because Shelley is there, and Holling sees that, and Shelley sees that, like they're they're there. But Holling does it he pretends that she's not there and he says sometimes you make me mad and then i can't remember is that is that the end of the scene does anything does like shelly say anything to that
2: no it actually just ends right there okay yeah i do like that set dressing like you mentioned like he goes back to the movie theater and it's just a really cool shot right there it's like okay so this is actually a way better decision than i'm having this conversation in maggie's home yeah and while the conclusion is very basic, I do have to give props to them for having the wherewithal and the forethought to be like, okay, let's have this all happen in Maggie's theater instead of just being on this boring couch yeah. and doing this uh, same routine because we, we kind of know what's happening here. There's no tricks or turns that's happening mm-hmm. really in this plot line. And we can see it come closer and closer to its resolution when Maggie pays a visit to Shelly at the brick and – we get a little bit more insight into what's happening here in that Shelly is aware of what she's doing. It's not like it comes out of negligence. It's not like she is not understanding of Hauling's emotions. She is just kind of taking advantage of his easygoing nature. Mm-hmm. So his emotional vulnerability is opened up to her so that she doesn't have to own up to anything. And Maggie says, well... I suggest that you actually sit down with him and let him air his grievances with you.
1: Yeah. She says, you're knowingly taking advantage of Holling's emotional responsibility. It's not a very healthy pattern. And she says, yeah. She's like, I think you should let him air all of his grievances and then apologize to him. Shelly hates apologizing, she says. She hates to apologize. She feels bad that she's doing it, but I think her discomfort apologizing outweighs the bad feeling. It's just so easy to, because Holling lets it slide. It's just so easy for her to take the easy road of just not apologizing. So um, Shelly does sit down with Holling later in the episode in the next scene um, that they're in. They're sitting at a booth in the brick and he says to her, are you sure you want to do this? She says, yes. And Holling has like a pocket notepad where he's got all his notes written. And he's like, well, um there was the videotapes, you know, he starts, he flips through the pages and I think it's really cool. It's, um, because it's kind of funny, Shelly's apologies are kind of like struggled. It's one way to describe it. Like they're not necessarily, uh, full hearted, you know, it's like hard for her to get a very earnest apology and Holland can kind of see this. Uh, but again, like he kind of lets all this stuff slide. So he's just like, I'm just going to tell you all the things. And I think he, at least to me, my inference of this is like, there's something in his performance and his look that tells me that he can see that she is understanding that this is an important uh, thing to happen, even though she can't really, she's not really giving like a full-hearted apology. The fact that Holling sees that she understands that it's important to him, I think is really meaningful to him as well.
2: Right. Uh Overall, I would say, it's an all right plot line between these two. It's not like... Yeah. It it, it happens as we think it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Each story beat occurs where it logically would, and we all think to each other like, oh, okay, this makes sense. I see what's happening here. It, it's not like a huge stick against it, but I'm not going to give it like huge props.
1: It's, yeah, no, it's a very simple, it's not over the top, it's not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? But it's just like a very, um, just a very like typical sort of misunderstanding that can happen between people. And I think it's cool that they point out, you know, it's like, it's not a very healthy uh, relationship, you know, a healthy pattern. So, you know, it's just like, um, so it's not like overly fantastic. It's just kind of realistic, mm-hmm. you know, kind of mundane in the same way. But um, but yeah, I, I won't knock it too much. It's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about All Things Considered, the way we open the soundbite of this episode. Robert Siegel presents Ruthann Miller. She uh, she has a story for All Things Considered about uh, Chris Stevens and his uh, piano fling, obviously from um, the season three episode Burning Down the House. You know, we get this wonderful, it's kind of cool. There's a, there's a lot of uh, cross dissolves and sweeping camera moves. It feels very like sort of like a storytelling montage, which is, you know, it's what it is. She's telling the story and um, the, the a lot of the cast are united at the brick, kind of listening to the radio program. They're cheering. Uh, yeah, when it ends, they all cheer and Chris uh, busts in through the doors and shouts her name, Ruthann Miller, and he blows her a kiss. Uh, it's just like, yeah, it's a, it's a great success for Ruthann and for the town of Sicily to be on national public radio.
2: Right, and this is where I thought the plotline was going to be really interesting, because what happens next is the fallout from this uh, extremely successful radio spot. Uh, Everyone's going to the store, they're complimenting Ruthann on her job, on her piece, and how it's really painting a beautiful picture of Sicily. And Chris comes in and says like, yeah, you know, you did a, a fantastic job. And some people, they really dig the thematic subtext. And Ruthen says, well, what do you mean by that? And Chris elaborates and says, well, you know, like the flinging of the piano its it's kind of resembling Christ and the rebirth of him. (laughs) There's a lot of things going on here. And Ruthen says, no, I, I didn't imagine that at all. That's not why I wrote the piece. That's not what I was trying to imbue into it. I was just trying to tell a story of a very funny, wonderful anecdote that happened in our town. And... I thought that we were about to have a conversation about authorial intent. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be very fun to have. That's <laughs> right pretty here. good.
1: We, I, I would have liked that episode, yeah, a lot. But I also think uh, we got we got a good bit of that sort of in the graduate what we just watched. So I do like where this goes too. Um, Though I think I would have liked, yeah, I would have liked both of those. Uh, both of those. I just like that they're kind of focusing in both of those examples that we're talking about. Uh, or intent, or what ends up happening here, just sort of like the sophomore slump. Uh, well, anyway, um, they're both kind of talking about the process of an artist and like what an artist has to face and think about.
2: Yeah, and that's the road that we're going to be focusing on because to compile onto that, we have Maurice coming in meeting with Ruthana at the brick while she's trying to compose her next piece. And Maurice says that there is an interesting offer for her now. There is a uh, like merchandise. We can Mm -hmm. franchise this idea of yours in order to really kickstart it, put it nationwide. And he quotes Garrison Keillor was kind of doing the same thing right there. And he mentioned that like, okay, so there's two things going on here. Number one, Garrison Keillor was the host of A Prairie Home Companion. It was a very long radio show, 1974 to 2016. It was about a fictional Minnesota town, Lake Wobegun. It talked about the denizens of the town and all that. And the second thing is that Maurice has like a little dig against him, saying like, you could have done what Garrison Keillor did before, you know, it went crazy and went to Sweden. <laughs> I was wondering what that was all about. Yeah, I was what like, is what,
1: that? What is I, this? I was trying to find yeah. it. Yeah.
2: So I found a little thing from the Chicago Tribune in 1987, and it says – By Garrison Keillor's count, four celebrities live in St. Paul. There's the governor, the mayor, the TV weatherman, and Keillor considers it his misfortune to be the fourth. And that's why he's moving to Denmark. (laughs) So, uh, the article doesn't really go more into like, I I don't know if it's like a mental breakdown or whatever, but (laughs) it does mention that in 1987, it was big enough to make headlines in the Chicago Tribune for them to write about, (laughs) uh, and I also didn't know this. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, Lee, but like apparently in like 2018, he's like he, he got his comeuppance. He did things he shouldn't have. I saw
1: that. Uh, yeah, when I was trying to figure out what happened to uh yeah. to <laughs> Garrison Keeler. yeah. Well, as you said, Maurice trying to get uh, Ruthanne to merchandise uh, her. Her program's called Tales of Sicily, or the series that she's um, intending. This was the you know the first thing that she did on a. Uh, All Things Considered was just part one of maybe a longer series. She's working on her next piece. um, Before Maurice actually approaches her, Maggie does. And she's like, you know, people are really fascinated by bush pilots. I think that could be like a really interesting subject for your next piece. Like you could ask me what my life is like, and you could include that in your next Tales of Sicily piece. So it's like the town is excited that they're getting... Some recognition and some fame, and they're kind of excited for Ruth Ann, but they're mostly, maybe they're mostly excited that they're on the map. And Maggie, probably not the only person um, in town that wants to be featured, because I think later we see like people trying to like grab Ruth Ann's attention uh, as she's like recording like a, a, a rough take or something for for the next episode. Um, but she dismisses both of them, you know, as they come to the table. She's just like riding away at the brick. Trying to figure out what was the next one going to be. Yeah, I think actually the next scene with Ruthann, it's a bit later in the episode, is when they are doing like a little recording um, in the in K-Bear. Chris is assisting Ruthann in getting um, some tape recorded for Tales of Sicily. And, uh, she starts to talk about hauling and Jesse the bear. So that would be her, I guess that would be her next story. Um, but as I mentioned, a lot of the townsfolk have gathered outside of K-Bear, the glass there, glass window booth, and they're trying to get Ruthann's attention. Someone's on like a, uh, unicycle. Everyone's just, um, fascinated. And then also like, yeah, they want to be famous, I guess, part of this uh, celebrity. Yeah. Is she using a sure
2: mic right there in the studio?
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure it's that, it's the same mic that Chris uses, right?
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah. So Very that handsome is, mic. Yeah, that is like the, the podcasting mic of today is the Shure SM7B, which is the mic that you're using, Charles. So this is probably that same mic, or I know that like that mic, um, in, in years of the past, like this looks like kind of a vintage mic. It could just be an earlier model. I think it was called like the SM7. Um, even before I don't know too much about microphone history. Mm, okay. Yeah. The like vintage SM7. That might be it. I'm I'm sure there's a bunch of different versions of this mic throughout the years, maybe.
2: And that's past the boiling point, and that takes us to our resolution or the way in which we solve this conflict. We have Ed be the hero of the story, in that mm-hmm. he's working at Ruth Ann's store and he's talking with her. And Ruth Ann says that she's gonna walk away from this. And Ed says, early burnout. And Ruth Ann replies, no, I was only really doing this for fun. This wasn't something in which, like, I really, really wanted to do.
1: But then she next admits to Ed, the truth is that I'm scared.
2: But I do like what Ed interjects with when she says, like, "And you want to know the truth? And Ed says, you want to direct? <laughs>
1: Oh, actually, that's really good. I forgot about that. You want to know the truth, Ed? You would like to direct instead of write, I guess, or instead. That's
2: of- such a like. Isn't that a very common thing? Like actors, like ultimately, yeah. just want to be directors.
1: Sorry, <laughs> yeah, that is a that can be like a uh, pipeline. You know, um, she says her first piece was such a hit, and now everybody expects so much. And Ed calls it the sophomore slump. Uh, he brings up the perfect example which is Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. It was his very first film he ever made, and he won The Palme d'Or, which is like one of only, what, four or five American films to win The Palme d'Or. And it was his first movie. And many people today will also say that, like, he's never made a movie as good as that. I mean, he's great. He's an amazing filmmaker. It's just kind of like, how do you make a film better than that? Um, That's up for debate. I think he's made some amazing stuff.
2: I do think that's a really interesting discussion, though, because I've often heard that if you ever want to peer into like the quote unquote the soul of an artist, you look at their first work because that's their that's them at their most unrefined before they properly learn how to place like a semicolon or know exactly how to edit a piece. Mm-hmm. This is them essentially bearing themselves to the audience, and you're never going to see that again as they get better and better. And I'm not saying that they're becoming more dull or anything like that. It's just like the uncalculated risks that are taking are never going to be seen more than their very first piece.
1: Yeah. I don't, so I think that can be true in some cases, but I, I, in my opinion, at least with directors, I think it's uh, mostly not true. I've been following uh, really one of my favorite podcasts is uh, the blank check podcast. And mm-hmm. they, um they cover directors, filmographies, and they usually cover directors who, you know, at some point in their career, they have a massive hit, and then essentially are given like a blank check to do whatever they want, like their passion projects, their ambition. Um, it's like they they made a movie that was really successful, so the studios are like, here, you can just have all this money, do whatever you want. But mostly it focuses on just like the trajectory of, of a filmmaker's career. And usually it's like, what is the blank check moment? Like what was the moment in their career where they had this massive success and they made like a very personal film? But in a lot of cases, sometimes the first film is... Usually very bad, um, and that might not be because um, of anything to do with the artist. It could also just be like resources. Um, it could also be that they just don't know what filmmaking is at the time. I think there's a maybe, a, maybe I'm overspeaking, or overestimating, and saying that the majority of filmmakers' first films are not a good metric for their sort of signature or their essence. But I can think of some examples where, at least through the blank check, um, episodes, like the directors, they covered a lot of those. It's like, you could probably just skip that first, that first movie. You don't really need to see Mm -hmm. it to understand. Um, one example is, uh, they just did, um, Park Chan-wook and I haven't seen his, um, first film, but most of the blank check fan community is like, yeah, it's, um, I think even Park Chan-wook disowns his first movie too, which most (laughs) filmmakers probably will, but, but yeah. Yeah.
2: I, yeah, that actually is a very good counterpoint. And I think that holds merit uh, against what I was saying right there. Though there's probably like, you know, it's probably like some sort of like compromise thing where it's like yeah. the seeds of that were like to lay root so that, you know, the tree yeah. comes forth, yada, yada. But yeah, uh, Ed is trying to say that like uh, your first piece is going to be magnificent. But then your second one, the sophomore slump, you're going to suffer a little bit. It's a very common phenomenon. And my advice to you is is to hurry up and finish the second one so that you can get to the third one.
1: I really, really love this quote that Ed has. It just spoke to me very deeply. I maybe feel like in a similar situation with Ruthann, not a sophomore slump, but maybe in a bit of an artistic slump. Ed says, you know, you remember that short film I made three years ago? I mean, I haven't done anything since that and I I would have never even finished that screenplay I was writing if uh, Peter Bogdanovich hadn't gotten on my case. There was an episode earlier in uh, season five, I want to say, I think it was, yeah, it was season five Mm -hmm. where uh, Peter Bogdanovich visits Sicily and, you know, inspires Ed to finish his screenplay and stuff. Um, But the advice Ed gives, he says, you want to know what I learned?
0: You know what I learned? The good reviews can be more damaging than bad ones don't take yourself too seriously and
1: get your second project done as quickly as possible. So you can move on to your third. I really like that. There's three little bullet points, piece of advice, especially don't take yourself too seriously. I think that resonated a lot with me probably the first time I watched this. And even today, I think Northern exposure can be described as a very serious show, but I don't think it ever takes itself too seriously. And the fact that good reviews can be more damaging than the bad ones. I guess here in Ann's case, she's going to be her own worst critic. Like, how am I going to make something as good? Like, people will never love my second piece as much as my first. But also I feel like, um, yeah, validation sometimes can... Uh, again, there's so many factors. Uh, take this with a grain of salt. But sometimes validation can uh, maybe stifle you from trying to... Um, I don't know, trying different things out. I don't know. Does that make any sense?
2: No, it absolutely does. I think that like, so when you strike gold the first time, I want to say that when you go for your second piece, you're going to want to recreate the same circumstances. You're going to want to put things in the same order and that just won't work because you're writing an entirely new thing. Everything is entirely new. So every single thing that you create has to have its own path. Every
1: day is new. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you're going to want to just instinctively, because this is only your second piece. You want to follow the most familiar route to you, which is going to be your first one. And it's going to inevitably fail when you do that. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that when you get highlighted on your particular streams right there, you're going to want to follow them. And you're going to want to please the, the critics right there. And, you know also on that same note like i don't know i feel like I'm in this stage where like i don't even know what like how to review something at all how, how do you even look at this on like a, a metric point of view and try to see like the essence of it um mm. uh, what do i mean by all this i just said like something very wordy <laughs> what, what i mean by this is that like I, I i would say that like i kind of know comedy like i would i did it for like a number of years and i kind of know how like the art form works and even i'm not like so brazen to be like, oh, that that, that special sucked. (laughs) Like, that special, let me tell you why it's wrong. Because I feel like I don't have like a full, complete picture of the art form. And yet, there are people out there that have never gone on stage and said a joke in their life and they're very comfortable eviscerating something or calling something a hack. And I feel very uncomfortable with that because it's like, if I can't even see this, how are you even able to see this? It's like, there's no way. And of course, you know, I, I know the counterpoint is like, yeah, a review is just simply you stating your opinion. It doesn't mean anything, but I I think that like, it makes me uncomfortable for me to even like express this opinion because I feel like I'm doing a disservice to that individual who's trying to create things. Whenever I try to come in and say like, what what you just made is a pile of (laughs) doo-doo. Like I, I want to be able to analyze things better and be able to provide more constructive criticism, which would mean I would need a deeper understanding of the art form. And so like, Does that mean I should bar others from doing it? Should I be approaching this in a more totalitarian view? I'm not too sure. Mm.
1: No, I think it's uh, just understanding that is uh, having an understanding is like shows like some bit of beginning of mastery. You know, like this is, I guess we're going off on a tangent here. One (laughs) thing that I've noticed about uh, music, you know, we we were in band together, uh, high school band, Charles, and just over the years, like the more that I learned... And the better I got at my instrument, the more I could understand that the masters, like what exactly was happening and like how, they're, how good they are. So just like being able to understand more lets you really, you think you have an, a perspective or an opinion on what art is, but the more you know about it, it opens, your, uh, opens up your interpretation to it.
2: Yeah, no, 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 I, I completely agree. Like that's kind of how, like, how I've been approaching writing. And like high school and college, I, always thought, I was like, oh, I'm like a decent writer. Like I can, I can spool a good yarn. And then it wasn't until I started doing it earnestly, and I was looking at other writers, like actually paying attention to the placement of their words and the colons and the semicolons and the M dashes and why you want to use one word over another, even though they have the same meaning, like why, why would you do this all? And it wasn't until then that I was like, holy crap. I'm not good at writing at all. Like, I am just like a like college educated level, run of the mill, regular fella. I was like, I didn't realize that until I started doing it uh, for a couple of years. I was like, oh, shoot.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the, I can't be
2: talking about this at all.
1: I'm not sure who said it. Probably some... Uh... One of those old like Greek guys, but uh, philosophers, but it's like the wisest man is the one who knows he knows nothing, (laughs) Uh, which I think we could uh, maybe kind of tie into don't take yourself too seriously. One of the bits of advice that Ed gives. Uh, But yeah, that was, um, yeah, just, you know, I, I, I can think, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but there are some episodes of Northern Exposure where sort of the resolution is like cleanly stated like, um, ah, I can't remember an example, but there's one episode with like Walt where he like clearly states the theme, you know, that's, and that's the climax. And for us, when we saw that, we were like, uh, I mean, like, it's like, it's kind of like on the nose and a bit too tidy. Like they're just telling you what you're seeing and that's kind of what's happening here. But for some reason, I think it's really powerful. I think maybe because, um. Maybe because there is an emotional element tied in with Ann and her fear of, of being an artist and how to, her fear of her success and how, sh, how, how can she, how can she improve herself? Um, so maybe there's like an emotional element that, that makes it a little more powerful because yeah, I mean, Ed is just kind of like laying it down for us, but it's, it's, uh, I love it. <laughs> I, I do think it's actually a very interesting
2: idea that's happening here, which is that the subjects within this art are having a problem and the artists themselves are having a problem. So the feast is being handled by little Italy and they themselves are having their own kerfuffle. And then when we take a step back and we're trying to tell the offer to tells us Sicily for um, all things considered, mm-hmm. we see that the person trying to depict all this is also having trouble. Yeah. So it's like a pipeline. It goes all the way from top to bottom. And I think that is kind of interesting to look at. And I do think that there's a statement whenever we end on Ruthann capturing this entire festival. And she's saying like, you know, I'm running out of time. But this is just how life is in Sicily. It's just like these little pockets Mm -hmm. are happening right here. And I'm just trying to capture them all. But, you know, it's a little bit too much for even just my words to capture.
1: Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, you're right. So the the way the episode ends is uh, we get another all things considered broadcast. This is like a, I feel like it's like a live interview or at least just an interview taping because Paul Siegel is interviewing Ruth Ann as they're looking out the window watching the um, parade for the Feast of San Giuseppe. You know, I think they get on that subject, like uh, asking her what she likes to write about. And she says, I just like to write about like what happens in my life day to day and stuff like that. And she says, I'm watching the... Parade for the Feast of San Giuseppe. It hasn't happened for eight years, something like that. And Robert Siegel says, "Now, what? Now, why is that?" And she says, "Well, that—that's a whole story in its own in its own time." And uh, he says, "Well, we'll have to save that for the next episode of Tales of Sicily. So, you know, we can assume that uh, Ruthanne is a regular contributor, I guess, now to Tales of Sicily. And um, yeah, I wonder. I mean, what do you think?" Um, you think she ever has as much success as that first episode?
2: Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's as much, yeah. but I still think it is a success. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's an interesting thing.
1: If we think about that first episode, that was Burning Down the House. That's kind of the fan favorite. Like, what else, what other episode should could she talk about to um Well, she tried to, to talk get... about
2: uh, uh, Jesse and the Bear. <laughs> that's true. That's kind of that's interesting. A,
1: that's a classic. I guess we just have to look at what episode has the highest rating.
2: <laughs> <Let's, yeah. laughs> Aurora Borealis um that one in season 4 with the snow.
1: We've <laughs> talked about this before actually. Let's see. Um
2: Okay, so this is what it is. On IMDb, this is not a very good metric at all. I want to stress this. But this is what they got on the top rated tab. Yeah, season 3, episode 23, Sicily. Season 1, oh. episode 8 aurora borealis a fairy tale for big
1: people oh no you're talking about imdb rating
2: yeah yeah IMDb IMDb rating. no, that's all everything's
1: seven on imdb <laughs>
2: no no no. the episodes themselves are rated themselves uh different uh,
1: okay yeah i yeah, know so I'm like, just, number I'm just
2: checking <laughs> uh, uh very quickly uh number three season two episode five spring break number four season six episode 15 the quest joel's episode mm-hmm. and number yeah. five season three episode 14 burning down the house So it was actually the fifth most popular episode that she made her first piece about.
1: Well, I was going to say, let's uh, maybe hear from our guest. All right, let's put it in. Okay, so Charles, we're at that moment in our uh, podcast where we're going to invite on a guest. And for this episode, we've got a return. This is going to be Lauren at Lserver362 on Twitter. I guess we could call it X now. Um, but we could also just no, call no, it Twitter. No. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Lauren. Let's see. Lauren was on a, on a previous episode. That was she was on the Letter, season six, episode four. Earlier in this um, in this season, uh, we asked her to come back and do another episode, and she picked this episode, Little Italy. I think as she was finishing uh, finishing out the series, season six. And uh, I believe we're going to hear, but um, she watched this episode uh, kind of during, amongst, amidst her travel to Rosalind, Washington. So we're going to hear a little bit about that, the the town in which Northern Exposure was filmed. So without further ado, let's hear what Lauren has to say about this episode.
0: Hello, Lee and Charles at the Northern Overexposure podcast. This is listener Lauren at LServer362. Today's episode, Little Italy, well, it felt like a good one to reflect on, especially as, as of this recording, I went to Rosalind, Washington this past weekend in participation of their informal Moosefest gathering. Rosalind was completely beautiful, very historical, and of course, our beloved Sicily. I was also able to find Ruth Ann's gravesite, and I took many, many photos of the town. And one of the best aspects of visiting is now when I'm watching the episodes, I basically know exactly where the camera was placed for those exterior shots, and it really brings the show to life in a whole new way for me. Plus, we also got to eat at the brick and at Rosalind Cafe. We saw a deer cross the road when we first arrived, which prompted us to sing the theme song, and then later, after we left the brick, we saw a buck with a huge rack cross the street in front of us again, so it just felt right. I highly recommend anyone going to this lovely town, seeing some of the sights like the K-Bear set, Uh, Maurice's clock is in the Roslyn Museum, and of course you get to pick up a souvenir from Cicely's gift shop in the office of Dr. Joel Fleischman. The episode itself really showcased the town very well. I thought it was interesting that Dr. Capra's plot made me think of Season 3, Episode 13, Things Become Extinct, where Joel is looking for other Jewish people in Alaska in general. And it made me think about how Joel's journey to making Sicily his home or kind of going Alaskan was by embracing things that didn't feel like home and kind of changing in that way. Whereas this plot for Dr. Capra was kind of going back to things that he already knew about and like embracing his own culture and things that were of his home. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing to juxtapose. Dr. Capra's plotline led to really great Ed and Phil moments where they were just quoting Martin Scorsese movies. And of course, then seeing Marilyn just having no patience for that was very, very funny and entertaining. Another entertaining part was, of course, Ruth Ann and Chris – It seemed like they were almost proto-podcasting, so I kind of loved that. I do think that season six overall just has not had enough for Maggie as mayor. I keep wanting to see that, um, but she doesn't have enough to do in that role. I also think it's funny that overall I was thinking about how many basements we've seen. We've seen Ruth Ann's basement and the basement of the brick. Um, Just kind of an interesting thing about the buildings and the town itself. And then speaking of the brick, I thought that hauling was very unhauling-like. You you hate to see him and Shelley fighting, and they usually work so well together. But I definitely hated seeing bad Shelley. I, I took a note of not bad Shelley. Um, so that was interesting to see, at the very least. But overall, I thought it was a good episode. I thought it was really interesting to think about, you know, the ethnic backgrounds of our different characters, the show and the town showcases such a variety of cultural backgrounds that was really progressive for the time and still stands true. And I think generally it's handled pretty well in this episode. You know, we get a lot of Scorsese movies being quoted, and I think it's pretty entertaining. So... Overall, a good episode. Um, love this town. Love this show. Love the podcast. Thanks, guys.
1: All right. That was Lauren's thoughts on the episode and uh, a little bit of sort of like field reporting from from Rosalind from the Informal Moose Fest this year. Uh, this would have been probably late summer, like August time, like early fall, late summer. Um, where she, you know, is going around with friends, visiting Ruthann's grave. And what I thought was really interesting that she said, um, like being standing in the exact spaces where the camera would have been, you know, for shots. I love seeing like behind the scenes photos of the crew, like on Main Street or whatever, Pennsylvania Avenue in, in uh, Rosalind and just like seeing the Dolly track and like ladders and lights and thinking like, wow, yeah, like people, like obviously we've seen this show, but like these artists and crew and and actors, they were all like there in that space and time. And that's what made the show. It's kind of, uh, it's it's a cool, cool thought for me.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that seeing that this effort and commitment at this one single location was able to deliver something that's timeless, where we're still talking about it thirty years from now. And I, I wonder if the people that were working on it on that day—they like they were there behind the camera, or they were trying to help set up for the props, the actors themselves, obviously, the director, producers, all that—they were thinking like, "All right, this moment in which we're having right now, and which we're not even thinking about, we're just trying to get this you know, shoot done. Mm-hmm. It's late." <laughs> like, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly,
1: no. It's like, all right, well, like, uh, some punks are about to analyze this like 30 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. But I mean, like, when the show started, they probably, I don't think, I think all the actors were like, oh, we only agreed to like a little half-season half, half season installment. Like, they weren't expecting a, a season two, you know? But mm-hmm. I'm sure when the show was like really popular in the second, third, fourth season, um, there were probably some pretty profound moments on set. You know, I think these... Some of these performances, some of these scenes are pretty moving. And I imagine just being there. I kind of think of this, probably said this before, but I kind of think of this like, imagine being in the studio when like a hit is written and you're listening back in like the, in the control room and it's just like the (laughs) poppiest, catchiest, you're just like vibing. You're like, cause when you hear a song that is a hit, you're like, wow, that is like, they must've known immediately. Like when they hit play on the recording, they're like, holy we have a hit here. Like, this sounds so good. So I think there might have been moments on set where they were really, when especially when they were really famous and popular, the show, they were like, wow, we're really making art here, guys. You
2: know, <laughs> We're really cooking right here, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> I think that like, I would instantly think of like, okay, how are we marketing this? Like, what's the best way? I'm not even thinking about like the current moment. I'm just thinking about yeah. the future right there. I, I do think that it's a, a really wonderful thing for her to have seen. And yeah. getting into the episode itself, she said that there's a similarity between Dr. Capra's plot and the one between Joel in Things Become Extinct, trying mm-hmm. to find a home between them. Uh, one is for Italy and one is for Jewish. And, you know, it occurred to me that we didn't talk about this, but there is like an Italian-focused episode earlier in Northern Exposure. The one with yeah. Ed and mm-hmm. the um, – uh, gosh, all I remember from that episode is
1: like – Oh, it's yeah, like to he says, yeah. um, he has like a, wait, no, go ahead. I was going to say, look, the only thing I remember from that episode is that like, Ed gets like chased. Wait, that's the, he gets a Fed, Federico Fellini's ring. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was it. Is that the same episode where, yeah, he, yeah, that's the one where he like gives an acceptance speech and he starts speaking in Italian.
2: Yeah. But he can't,
1: <laughs> and like the translation is roughly something like, uh, if it's not soup, it's wet bread or something. Like that. <laughs> um, and then also, I mean, there's, um, I-, I thought you were about to say this and then I, cause I forgot about the Federico Fellini ring inside of the fish, you know, but there's another episode, uh, Una Volta in Linverno where, um. Ruthanne is trying to learn Italian so that she can read oh, Dante's right. Inferno mostly because she just wants to feel like a connection to this culture you know um yeah there's probably more things than we think of but I do I really do enjoy that we've got like a little like we said earlier in the in the episode just like a, a little a thriving uh Italian culture here. Yeah, similarly to things become extinct, I kind of did think of that episode as well. And "Cottage uh, for Uncle Manny" when Joel is like, has to sort of like search his faith in a in a land where there aren't very many Jews trying to connect to something like that. Mm-hmm. And Lauren also mentions uh, when Ruthann and Chris are recording uh, tape for the um, "All Things Considered," it makes her think of like a little podcast. And the more I think about it, I think that could be pretty fun. Like uh you know, I'm also you know, one of the first podcasts I listened to was uh Radio Lab. Mm-hmm. We listened to a lot of Radio Lab. Yeah. And like I don't know if the age difference would be exactly the same, but like, what is it, Robert Krollrich and um Jad Abumrod. I always used to think of like Robert Krollrich as like this much older man who's like tolerating this like sort of like whippersnapper, uh Jad <laughs> Abumrod. He's just like a little tweaky little nerd. But yeah, I mean that's there's something kind of fun about their dynamic on Radiolab, mm-hmm. and maybe there's a similarity between Ruthanne and Chris, but they would have their own dynamic as well. And I could also see it being pretty uh, heartfelt and touching, and 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 um, yeah, I, could, I see that being a great podcast.
2: Yeah, I can see Chris like really jumping in. Yeah, to like the podcast game, he'd be like Mark Maron, he'd be there on the ground floor for like 2004. <laughs> Yeah. Like right when the internet's starting up too, he's like, "Hang on, <laughs> like, honestly, there's something
1: cooking here." Honestly, yeah. And I was just thinking, like, if two characters from Northern Exposure had a podcast, who would be the two best to choose? Honestly, I think it is Chris and Ruthann. Like, who would who would be a be- name a better pair? I'll wait. <laughs>
2: <sighs> uh, Ed. Ed, but it Could would it would almost be it
1: would almost be too much up its own butt. Yeah like he should be a segment they can have him on as a segment
2: yeah yeah they can have him on for like a film segment or something like that but like if it's just chris and ed it would spiral (laughs) out of control like maybe not up their butt is the right word maybe just like unfocused very yeah uh very spiritual
1: (laughs) um lauren also brings up like she wishes she would see a little more of maggie as the mayor And we sort of, I mean, we sort of get that in this episode, but it's also not a very mayoral thing. It's kind of funny that she's, uh, you know, it's the mayor's duty to sort of provide couples counseling. Mm -hmm. But I agree. Like, it would be fun to see more of like the civic minded. Um, I really loved that episode. Um, I guess apart from, is that the one with like the weird Chris, uh, (laughs) the weird Chris fetishization Uh, of Maggie? But the one where they're trying to get a town dumpster, I kind of liked- aspects of that, if I can see more stuff like that, would be cool.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that they should lean more into Maggie being the mayor. And in fact, I had kind of forgotten that she was the mayor up until this episode.
1: Yeah, because the last episode, she's like um, opening a cinema. She's like a commercial real estate. Yeah, yeah. You know? She's like That's a manager. Like the, right, you you just don't associate
2: that with being a mayor, like yeah. at all. So, definitely, they should be leaning more into that.
1: Yeah, not saying she can't have both, you know, she can't do both at the same time, but it's like, yeah, I wish they would Underline the mayor thing a little more, but I mean, always the mayor has always been kind of like not really a huge thing in Sicily and northern exposure.
2: That's true. Uh, what is very common in Sicily apparently right now is basements. Uh, Lauren's making an observation on that. What are your thoughts
1: on basements? You ever we, we don't have basements in Louisiana, we, yeah? We low. don't have we're like <laughs> in New Orleans, we're literally below water level, like the city, so we can't really put a basement there i mean like i don't think you've been been in a basement like we've been in basements i don't think i've ever been in the basement well we went on a cabin trip last year that's not okay that's that's not like is that a basement okay
2: is that defined the definitions of a basement because it felt like a a lower room
1: it was kind of like a low but it was like uh it was underground right yeah because it was below ground level but the house was kind of built up the house was like built up on a
2: yeah, yeah it did have a water heater down there So like, maybe that is kind of feels basement-esque. Kind of like
1: the basement vibes. (laughs) But no, yeah, I don't think I've, I definitely have like a romanticized view, but I think a lot of people who hung out in basements in the nineties, like loved that. Like that's a, that's a vibe that we totally didn't get. So of course we romanticize it, but yeah, I would love to have a basement.
2: Damn. She also mentioned about hauling being very unhauling like, which is true. That plotline is kind of like, you know, I think we're all we're in universal consensus that like that plotline's a little weak and also not very great on the characters because it's like hauling flying at the fits of rage. Right. Shelley, you can argue that like hauling shouldn't have done that, but Shelley's unequivocally doing something very bad.
1: Right. There is no like redeeming quality about her. In this episode. That's true. Yeah. And I kind of, I had that instinct as soon as I was watching this episode, like when Eugene leans over to Marilyn and he's like, you know, Shelley walks all over Hauling and he doesn't say anything about it. You know, I was like, is that true? Like, is that canon? Like, what is Eugene talking about? But then I, but then I was like, okay, that's what the, that's going to be like the subject of this episode. That's what they want us to That's the uh, invitation that they're giving us to come along for this like storyline. I'm like, sure, yeah, I'll I'll follow and see what they want to say. But it did feel, yeah, it felt uncharacteristic of Hauling and of Shelley. Yeah. But I think that does it for Lauren's comments on this episode. Lauren, thanks again so much for coming back on the pod. And uh, you actually watched this and sent this a while back, you know, when we were on hiatus. Uh, We're so happy for you that you got to go to MooseFest. So jealous. And we loved hearing like your emails. And, uh, oh, I should mention that. Um, well, I'll see if it's okay with you, but we could post the um, a link in the description of this episode for some of the photos if you want, like to share those. Because um, I know you've shared them on, I feel like you've, it's on Twitter or somewhere online. But if you have any that you'd like us to share, we'd love the fans to see them. Uh, it's It's pretty exciting just seeing... Anytime, like on the on the uh, Northern Exposure subreddit, invariably people will go up to Rosalind just all times of year sometimes and do like a photo dump. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. So and just imagine, Charles, one day we're gonna go there. So we'll be we don't have to <laughs> look at pictures. We'll see we'll see where the camera is placed. But yeah, that does it for this week's episode, Charles. Next week we're gonna talk about the nineteenth episode of season six. It's called Balls. B A L L S. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of things that I'm sure a lot of things that the title is trying to reference. What do you think is, uh, what do you think is going to happen in this next episode?
2: Ah, oh, man. Balls? I, uh, naturally you think of sports balls. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, it's gotta yeah. be it. That's I think I there's going to be
1: some, there's going to be some sports balls, but I think there's also going to be some like, uh, you know, yeah, balls can kind of interchangeably be used as like courage or chutzpah. I, yeah, is that a I thing? Just, it is, but like I don't know. I
2: don't uh, usually northern
1: exposure doesn't usually
2: go in that direction. <laughs> I, I, w- I would like to believe that it's gonna be something sports affiliated in the town.
1: Yeah. Okay, how about this? I I'm gonna say that's right. There is a sport. What sport will it be? Can you guess? Oh, uh bowling balls. What? You guessed it right. What? It's a bowling <laughs> episode, or at least part of it is bowling. <laughs> Very no nicely way. done.
2: Oh man. All right. Well, done. let's let's see how it turns out next week,
1: Lee. All right. I'll see you next week, man. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Be ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Lauren for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.